the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producer, Casey Pegram, and our super producer, Max Williams. Oh, just had to get that one out of the way, Noel. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was only right and natural, Ben. I'm Noel. Um, uh, You said that. Um, Ben, how do you feel about a soup? Are you a soup person? I like soup. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this because too much soup can have this weird sort of, I don't know, it, it always felt like it had a comedic implication to me even before the infamous soup Nazi of the Seinfeld days. But I um yeah, I like a good soup. I make a I, I make a pretty mean soup myself. But to me, soup is like you've probably heard people talk about this before, guys, but some people feel like soup is either a poor person's meal or not a real meal, just soup by itself. I tend to disagree with the latter point, but what do you think, Noel? Well, it certainly is a uh, good use of leftovers. All you need is a little bit of stock uh, and some vegetables and a meat of some sort, perhaps just like some leftover ham or, or, or beef or something like that. You got yourself a stew going, baby to quote uh, Carl Weathers uh, from uh, Arrested Development. But I just want to bring up really quickly while we're on the specifically the soup part of this discussion. I mean, we're going to get more into, into soup discussions, but there was something called perpetual stew mm-hmm. that was a staple of medieval inns back in the day. And it was literally just like, you, you see it in, in movies and stuff, the giant cauldron of bubbling stew over the uh, fire, like in, a, in an inn. Uh, it was called perpetual stew because it was just always going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they would just add more stuff to it and replenish it as needed, but it was it never really got like started from scratch. And I'm sure it led to some uh, foodborne illness, but it was definitely something that probably contributed as well to the uh, notion of s- soups or stews being kind of a poor person's meal, mm-hmm. um, because of, you know it is very much something that you can just use whatever's laying around. 
It also uh, is, of course, a staple of institutionalized feeding of the homeless, for example, in what is known as soup kitchens, where you, you know, line up and you get yourself a cup of soup and then that's, you know, will hopefully sustain you for a little while. But those things kind of combined have led to this uh, reputation that soup has as sort of like a, a lower uh, meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And don't get us wrong, there are definitely soups that have been considered historically fancy. Turtle soup, we did an episode yep. on that. Lobster bisque as well. But you're right. You know, it turns out that people have been making soup for an estimated 20,000 years. It's by no means a new idea. It's, uh, try not to say super too much in this episode, Noel. It's uh, extraordinarily practical. And Today's story isn't just about the history of soup kitchens. Don't worry. You're probably still going to leave hungry, but don't worry. This story is about something else, too. We're going through a bit of a crime phase this week on the show. And the star of today's episode, in many ways, is a guy named Al Capone, the quintessential American gangster. He was so successful during his time that it's difficult for a lot of people nowadays to describe the full extent of his criminal empire. Like we know, we know he did a ton of dirt, Noel, but we also know that the crimes that eventually brought him down had nothing to do with his bootlegging or anything like that. It was tax evasion. The IRS will get you back then. The IRS, it will absolutely get you. I actually just got done um, watching the full run of Boardwalk Empire, and Alphonse Capone uh, plays a huge role in that show because the history of organized crime is very much uh, entwined in the history of prohibition because when the uh, Volstead Act was passed, it made alcohol illegal and opened up this entire new black market that did not exist before. And when you have a black market, of course, you're going to have violence and, and turf wars and things that all stem from the fact that something is made illegal. It is often the argument for, like, say, legalizing drugs, because if you do that, then you don't have a need for things like cartels to come in and fill that vacuum um, of, of legal sales of things, you know, with this black market. So basically, the impetus for striking down the Volstead Act or repealing it was because of a couple of things. It was because of this, you know, burgeoning organized crime uh, world that kind of uh, sprung up around it, but also all of this unclaimed tax revenue that was just going down the tubes, you know, and this all happened in the face of the Great Depression. And like many crime lords, in their own hometowns or their own home territory, it's often quite popular, uh, quite a popular choice diplomatically to sort of paint themselves as sort of Robin Hood-esque figures. We know Pablo Escobar did that in his uh, home turf of Medellin um, in Colombia, and uh, Al Capone was no different. Even though he was absolutely an unhinged psychopath who would, you know, bludgeon to death with like paperweights and baseball bats anyone that crossed him or even offended him mildly, but he still wanted to curate this image of himself, not just as public enemy number one in his hometown of Chicago, but also as some sort of benevolent overlord mm -hmm. that looked out for the little people and was really just kind of sticking it to the man. But as we know, he was much, much more than that and, and absolutely a terrible, terrible person. How's your mother doing? She get the, uh, yeah, she get the soda pop I sent? All right, be a good mm -hmm. kid. Here's a nickel. Be a good kid. Yeah, <laughs> run, run along. Uh, exactly. No, it's true. So it's, you're right. 
this Robin Hood image, while demonstrably false in many ways, is an important piece of garnering local support, community support. And when the official government steps in, new power structures can rise. This is what Capone saw during the stock market crash that would set off what we call the Great Depression. Today, he said, you know, I could do a little PR. Yeah, how's your mother? Uh, so he, so he opened a soup kitchen in Chicago. Again, if you've listened to our previous episodes about this time period, you know that life was fundamentally rocked and shaken to the core for so many people living in the U.S. at the time. People who had homes literally no longer had those homes. They no longer had jobs. They no longer had any economic opportunities. They were, in a very real way, worried about what they and their families would eat every day. So this this soup kitchen was a brilliant move. And the big question is how much of it was his, it was actual, you know, concern for his fellow human beings, how much of it was concern for his deteriorating public image. We have views on that that I think we could give you in the course of the show. But first, let's let's talk a little bit about Capone, pre-Boardwalk Capone. Believe it or not, he was not born a middle-aged crime boss. He was born in relative to relatively modest means, son of poor Italian immigrants who moved to Brooklyn. He got expelled from school for socking a female teacher, and then he joined a street gang. And he was, by all means, a, a pretty smart dude. You can't rise to this level of organized crime without being, you know, a fairly bright crayon. He could have maybe pursued his education. No, there might be a world just to the left of ours where he is like a very well-known criminal defense attorney. How hilarious would that be? That's not what happened. He took over Chicago's leading crime syndicate. And just four years after taking over Chicago's organized crime, he was a multimillionaire, I believe. Yeah, and as he's portrayed in Boardwalk Empire by the fantastic actor Stephen Graham, who you might remember from some early Guy Ritchie movies, like I believe he was in Snatch or Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I think we both often confuse those two. Uh, no, I think he was in. I think he was in Snatch. Um, but he is a British actor who does a damn fine Brooklyn accent as Al Capone. You know, he's, he's very really disappears into that role. He had the nickname Scarface because he did have these like very large uh, scars on his face from when he was attacked uh, with a blade and and uh, kind of disfigured. Um, and he was very insecure about it and actually wore makeup to cover these scars, like some kind of like a uh, pancake makeup. Um, so you see that in, in the show. But he also was so uh, successful and so, let's just say, kind of self possessed that he didn't want to play nice with any of the other crime families or any of the other, you know, members of the syndicate. And that ultimately led to his downfall as well, because he was, uh, you know, kind of a little too big for his britches, as folks would say, and he didn't want to kind of uh, cut other people in. So that ultimately led to his rivals kind of helping in his downfall a little bit as well. But you're right, Ben, he made around $40 million throughout the course of his career, primarily from selling illegal alcohol during Prohibition, like I said, with that vacuum um, left by uh, the outlawing of, of booze. And it was distributed to more than 10,000 speakeasies and uh, houses of ill repute through this massive 
operation that he was at the heart of this kind of network of uh, of bootleggers that you know distributed all throughout the midwest and because of the way prohibition was viewed in that it was like you know there were obviously teetotalers and folks that thought prohibition was kind of saving the soul of america there were an equal if not much greater number of people that looked at it as being deprived of their civil liberties so even the average person felt like it was their god-given right to drink alcohol and that al capone was just giving the people what they wanted yeah and what they wanted was booze Just to run this through the inflation calculator, as we said, four years after he joins these, after he heads these crime syndicates, he's making 40 million. So if we can get our inflation calculator, he makes, uh, it's around $550 million. This guy is not hurting for money at all. And he's got, um, he, he is very conscious of the fact that he needs this public support. He's doing all sorts of dirt behind the scenes, but he's also very publicly launching programs to give milk to all the Chicago school children, which also has its own sketchy backstory. And he's donating tons of cash to local charities. This is this all happens before the stock market crash on October 29th, 1929, by the way. When the stock market crash occurs, he sees the writing on the wall. As we said, banks are failing, businesses are shuttering, millions of people are unemployed, they don't know where they're going to eat. And that's where we see the rise of bread lines, the rise of things like soup kitchens. I'm throwing my arms around, even though this is an audio podcast, it's just a big, (laughs) this is a huge social change. And just for perspective, in November of 1930, more than 75,000 people in Chicago without jobs lined up to register their names uh, while they would wait for some kind of government assistance, whether that's a free meal program or whether that's a, um, a work program of some sort. And the Chicago Tribune notes that unless anybody feels, you know, kind of classist, these aren't, you know, stereotypical hobos with bindles waiting in line. These people are dressed, they're dressed like they're going to church or they're dressed like they're going to work in an office. And that's when in such a, in a very short span, hundreds and hundreds of soup kitchens pop up all around the country. And one of those soup kitchens literally belonged to the man himself, Scarface Al Capone. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. He didn't even have a name for his charity, which I thought was interesting. But there was a sign over the door of the kitchen that said, Free Soup, Coffee, and Donuts for the Unemployed. And they served around 2,200 people every day with no questions asked, no need to prove that you qualified or whatever. They even would dole out second helpings. Because again, I mean, look, uh, sorry to keep going back to this clearly probably, you know, hyperbolic and fictionalized portrayal of Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire, but he, this is accurate, he did have a son who was uh, disabled. He was deaf. And you do see the character kind of struggling with how to, you know, literally communicate to his son and and keep him from being bullied and all of that. But you did get a sense that he very much loved his son and he was a family man. But he, you know, was also an unhinged kind of sociopath. So it's an interesting dichotomy that you see. So whether it was pure optics or pure politics that he was playing or if he actually did have a soft spot in his heart for the kind of disenfranchised, I think the jury's still a little bit out, but breakfast was a cup of hot coffee that was uh, sweetened with sugar and sweet rolls, which would be kind of like a cinnamon roll type situation. And then lunch and dinner, you could get a, a bowl of soup and a loaf of bread or a slice of bread. And every day, 350 loaves and a hundred dozen sweet rolls were consumed by the folks that uh, frequented this kitchen. And 30 pounds of coffee that was um, sweetened up with around 50 pounds of sugar uh, were also in play. Uh, It cost around $300 a day, which in, you know, 1930s dollars, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It's a little less than five grand. Exactly, every single day. But it was clearly worth it to him whether politically or whether it gave him a sense of purpose and made him feel like less of a monster. But he didn't strike me as the kind of guy that was particularly self-aware of his status as being, you know, kind of a, a, a monster. But we do know that even though he didn't have his name on the building, he was connected to it in stories that were printed in the local papers. Yeah, and his associates went on record, someone who knew Capone. It was like an open secret that this was a Capone operation. One of his colleagues said he, meaning Capone, couldn't stand it to see those poor devils starving. Nobody else seemed to be doing much. So the big boy decided to do it himself. They're clearly leaning into this sort of anti-hero image. But then that image brings with it its own complications. 1930, Thanksgiving, Capone Soup Kitchen is planning to have a traditional Thanksgiving meal for people in need. And and they had, you know, they were serving at this point like 5,000 Chicago residents a day. Here's his problem, though. His his crimin- He's aware his criminal past might affect public image. Someone in the city had done a turkey heist. Right before Thanksgiving, yes. they stole a thousand turkeys from this department store. And Capone was not involved with this crime. He was above turkey theft at this point. But he said... I would think. You would hope. And he said, you know, well, we don't want to be blamed for this caper. So at the very last minute, they said, look... 
We run a clean soup kitchen here. We're not serving turkey and cranberry. We're serving beef stew just to keep the heat off. Yeah, and I understand why he did that, optically speaking, but it also is kind of a cheapo move. They could have pivoted to something like a nice ham, you know, uh, something a little more festive. Beef stew, I don't really associate that with the holidays very much. I would imagine that that came from stuff they already had lying around because, well, they didn't want to be seen as having, uh, you know, participated in any kind of turkey heist. They also didn't want to have to go and, you know, buy a whole another however many thousand hams they would have had to buy. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to be honest, uh, no, Max, if I had to choose between the two, I would choose beef stew. I'm a beef stew guy. I don't know. I love a beef stew. I do love a beef stew. It's true. Um, so, you know, he really cared about, at, at the very least, this image of being this kind of benevolent, you know, criminal. And, you know, he this included widows and orphans and the homeless, of course, you know, but it, so it was a big swath because at this point, because of the unemployment and the absolute disaster that was the Great Depression, a lot of these folks were mixing, you know, it was um, not just one particular type of, of individual that would have been standing in line at these uh, at this kitchen. And the Bismarck uh, Tribune reported on this and they noted that, quote, a hungry man is just as glad to get soup and coffee from Al Capone as from anyone else. Very true. Very true. And there's there's an excellent piece of writing in Harper's Magazine that shows the irony of this situation in Chicago, because, of course, not everybody approved of Capone's charity here. And I think, this is just my opinion, I think it's because he had some other motives at play. I think that's pretty obvious. Anyway, in Harper's, the writer Mary Borden she notes this image that really stuck with me, says, you know, picture this. There's a line of people without jobs that are waiting for a handout from Capone's soup kitchen. He's the most wanted man in Chicago. And picture, if you will, the line for his soup kitchen stretching past the very front door of the city's police headquarters, which held evidence of the incredibly violent crimes that Capone committed or had committed. And the press was desperate to uh, to get more info on this. He got a lot of PR from having a soup kitchen. The press was always trying to like send somebody in to catch Capone there in person, but they never did. You won't find a photograph of him at the kitchen today. Uh, and some newspapers were negative in their press, like the Daily Independent in Murfreesboro, Illinois, who said, if anything were needed to make the farce of gangland complete, it is the Al Capone soup kitchen. It would be rather terrifying to see Capone run for mayor of Chicago. We're afraid he would get such a tremendous vote. It's even conceivable that he might be elected after a few more stunts like his soup kitchen. But again, he's just feeding people. You know, people are eating at the end of the day. He's not poisoning them. You know, he's not forcing them to commit crimes for him. But it is a battle of hearts and minds. And at this point, he is very much winning. That's right. And it wasn't even his idea. Uh, and speaking of politics, you know, I mean, he was very closely embedded in politics. And we know about the, you know, the political machines of Chicago and all of that and the, you know, boss tweed and all of that stuff. I mean, it really is a, a historically corrupt political city. Uh, and has, has maintained that reputation even up until the modern day. But this dude, Daniel Saratella, 
who was a pal of Capone's, and he was also a political ally. He got elected to the Illinois State Senate in 1930, and he's the one who suggested to Capone that he do this soup kitchen stunt, for lack of a better word. Harry Reid, who was a newspaper reporter at the time, claimed to have been present in an apartment with Capone and Saratella when this idea kind of came up. And he says that on November 1930, November 2nd, 1930, Capone said, quote, there are so many people hungry in the first ward because of the depression that Dan asked me to back a free handout joint. I'm not even going to try to do the Al Capone voice. He's got more starving people down there than he can handle. All the bums that land in Chicago go to the first ward. That makes it tough for the people who live there. And so we figured if we could feed the drifters, it would lighten the load for the regular charity rackets. The charity rackets. And uh, (laughs) the city editor there says, you know, Capone, this will make a great story. And Capone didn't like it. He furrowed his brow and he said, nothing to it. Nick's on that. No story. I'd only be panned for doing it. And he was right. Some newspapers were inevitably going to pan him. But also, lest we paint this man as too much of a saint, he did not invest a ton of his own money into the soup kitchen. Instead, as reported in a biography on him, Capone, his life, legacy, and legend, he bribed and extorted other businesses to supply the food. Like there's a 1932 trial with Saratella over whether the guy conspired with grocers to cheat customers. And in the course of that trial, the court discovered a load of ducks had been donated by this chain store to Christmas baskets for the poor, but they disappeared along the way and Capone's soup kitchen ended up with a lot of ducks. Yeah, I mean, even that turkey heist that he supposedly had nothing to do with, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some of that could have ended up in his uh, kitchen at some point, circuitously, right? Like, you know, fell off a truck, that whole situation. And in addition to bootlegging alcohol and making a fortune off of that enterprise, he also was hugely involved in illegal gambling. And his underground casinos would do about $25,000 of profit every month. Yeah, so he wasn't hurting for money. He totally could have paid for this and not missed a meal himself. It would not have impacted his life in a meaningful way to do so. But he still didn't pay. As we, as we clearly outlined, he was making other businesses foot the bill and provide the supplies. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You may be familiar with the city of Chicago, and you might want to, you know, give this piece of obscure history an in-person visit. But if you go to 935 South State Street in the South Loop neighborhood today, you are not going to see the soup kitchen because it closed abruptly in 1932 in April. The owners of the kitchen claimed that it was no longer needed because the economy was finally on the way back up. But that's a little bit weird because from 1931 to 1932, the number of unemployed people in the country had increased by 4 million. Not 4 million total, just 4 million newly jobless people. 100%. And I just want to backtrack ever so quickly and slightly. You may well have heard of the St. Valentine's Day massacre in 1929 on St. Valentine's Day. That was a hugely public slaughter of many of Capone's competition in the crime world. And it was squarely pinned on him in the press. So this whole soup kitchen thing was also an effort to kind of get the public opinion back on his side, right? Yeah, absolutely. This was, that, that was ultimately his motive, we think. Just two months after the soup kitchen closes, Capone is indicted on the, those crimes we mentioned before. Not bootlegging, not gambling, 22 counts of income tax evasion. And this is so crazy. I think about this kind of stuff sometimes, man. I know it's very self-centered, but Capone is this huge... He's like an international figure oh, at yeah. this point. And his career is over when he's only 33 years old. He eventually gets locked up in Alcatraz while he is on trial leading to his incarceration. He is pledging left and right. I'm going to reopen my soup kitchen. But that never happens. And as you know, Capone is eventually released from prison in 1939. But he is suffering from the uh, complications of syphilis. He is mentally and physically incapable of operating the way he once did. In fact, just a year before his death, Capone's psychiatrist would go on to conclude that he had the mentality of a 12-year-old child. He spent the last years of his life at his mansion in Palm Islands, Florida, and he died of cardiac arrest and suffering a stroke in 1947. Yeah, that's right. And um, obviously, we still think of Al Capone today and really associate him as one of the kind of, you know, top figures in American organized crime. And that's because he wanted it. You know, like there's a, a, a scene in Boardwalk Empire where he uh, and his cronies are all kind of gathered in a, in a hotel suite and he forces them to repeatedly watch this newsreel kind of dramatizing his rise to prominence in, in the crime world and referring to him as uh, public enemy number one. And he literally makes them watch it like three times in a row. He's also like, always high on cocaine in the show, which I didn't realize was a thing. But uh, again, they, they do a pretty good job at sticking to mostly uh, true historical things uh, when it comes to the the characters in Boardwalk Empire. But it's true. He definitely had this reputation that lived on far after he passed away. The soup kitchen, however, didn't have that same longevity. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely true. If you trace the life of the soup kitchen... After it gets closed down, you'll see that it also ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. 
the building eventually became a flop house. And then in 1955, the authorities in Chicago said, hey, this is a fire hazard. They shut it down permanently. So if you go there today where it stood, you'll find a parking lot. You know, maybe you could be the change, fellow ridiculous historian. Maybe you could just uh, park there with uh, some soup, like a, a big terrine of soup or or a cooler of soup, a thermos. I don't know. You probably have to have a permit, though, unless you're also a crime boss. Yeah, you would think. And it's interesting, too, just like the kind of nuances of uh, of how Capone's reputation sort of affected his care um, at the end of his life, right? Um, we know that he spent the last year of that prison sentence in the hospital for syphilis. After that, he was trying to get the best care because obviously he had the money to do it and had not been completely wiped out by the IRS. I'm sure he had some cash stored away in some mattresses or safe deposit boxes or what have you. So he was trying to get help at Johns Hopkins University because his primary care physician was an associate professor of medicine there at Johns Hopkins. And this personal doctor was trying to pull some strings to get him to be admitted to Johns Hopkins, which, as we know, is a very illustrious university known today as being one of the top medical schools in the uh, world, um, in the country at the very least. But the board of trustees of Johns Hopkins were not having it. They did not want their reputation tarnished by having uh, one of, you know, the most notorious gangsters ever to be, you know, hanging out in their hospital. So they refused treatment to him, or they, at the very least, they refused to have him be admitted for a long-term stay. So he had to go with Baltimore's Union Memorial Hospital, who I guess had slightly lower standards, and they did admit Capone for treatment, and they even took it a step farther and allowed his entourage, bodyguards, a barber, personal barber, and masseur, also food tasters. I mean, it's crazy, dude. Capone really was like gangster royalty, you know, and he was super paranoid. He always thought people were out to get him. He didn't trust anybody. And he employed food tasters to uh, protect him from being poisoned by his enemies, of which numbered in the, you know, uh, incalculable, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Capone also had a soft side. He wrote a love song in prison, which I feel like could be its own episode. And he and he's the he uh, is the reason that the phrase money laundering is popular in the modern day. So, yes. Was he a criminal? Absolutely. Was he ruthless? Absolutely. Did he run a soup kitchen for self-serving reasons? You betcha. But he also left us with tons and tons of things, of ideas, concepts and pieces of history that remain with us in the modern day. So I, I got to tell you, you know, I think it's just because of the culture I grew up in, but I've always been one of those people who digs the anti-hero vibe. You know, if I were in Chicago at that time, I might think it is a plus that the guy who sells me underground booze has also given me free soup. You know what I mean? Totally. And uh, just to backtrack a split second to his, uh, you know, status as like a huge music buff, he did write that song um, entitled Madonna Mia, but he also, he actually kidnapped the famous jazz musician Fats Waller, Thomas Wright Fats Waller, who was a very prominent jazz musician at the time. In 1926, they basically black bagged the guy um, at gunpoint, forcing him into the back of a limo with some of his associates. He wasn't present because he was at his 
27, 27, good Lord, 27th birthday party. Uh, and, and basically, you know, this is just the, the way he does business. He, he doesn't ask, he tells. And he had Fats Waller do a non-consensual birthday performance, a private showing at his party. And of course, there's a final bit here as we wrap up the money laundering thing. The reason we're mentioning that, the phrase does come to us in the modern day because when Al Capone needed to funnel his illegal cash, his ill-gotten gains, his literal ill-gotten gains, he would use laundromats because it was hard for the Johnny Law of the day to keep track of how cash was flowing into those businesses. Uh, so, the, the, you know, some people still use laundromats today, but more importantly, folks, tell us what you think. What do you, what do you think about the career of Al Capone? And I think you can call it a career. He was running an empire. What do you think about the idea of criminals or organized crime stepping in to assist the public when it feels like the ordinary governing structures have not or are incapable or unwilling to do so? We'd love to hear all these thoughts. Please let us know at our officially, hopefully working email address, ridiculous at iHeartRadio.com. Noel, we got to test that one too when we get off air, just to make sure. We definitely do, Ben. But hopefully all is right in email world and we will be hearing from you shortly. Huge thanks to super producer Max Williams and his brother Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, Jonathan Strickland, Quister should be seeing him again soon one of these days and uh, Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit yes as well as Eve's Jeffcoat check out our Turpentine episode uh, and all the other great shows Eve's creates and of course thanks to our own Al Capone Gabe Luzier who is entirely working as our research associate as a very complex money laundering scheme which does uh, as far as I understand does involve regular heist of ducks, turkeys, and beef stew. Stay safe out there, Gabe. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Compatibility. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. 
True story, the intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time, special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. 